Hello, and welcome to my Love Letter Time Machine, a podcast where we are discovering the Victorian love story told through the letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton, who were courting in the 1880s. I'm Ingrid Birchall Hughes, and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter. And this time, we'll be taking a look at the story of two sisters who ran two pubs and investigating the strange Victorian phenomenon of the Vinegar Valentine. In our last episode, we got to see a bit more about Fred and his background in the Outercliffe slums of Sheffield. So I felt it was time to understand a bit more about Janie and where she came from. About three years ago, I had the chance to visit Hansworth in Sheffield to see the Cross Keys pub, the pub where Janie grew up. Hansworth has almost been absorbed into the wider suburban Sheffield, but still feels like a village. It had, and still does, have a great view of the city below, on account of being sighted on a hill to the east. In Fred and Jane's time, it was much more detached from the bustle and rapid industrialisation going on below. The Cross Keys were sighted right on the prow of the hill on the main road. To the west you would descend to Sheffield, and to the east you would descend down to the neighbouring village of Woodhouse. It's still there, only it's been named the Chantry Inn, on account of it being the Chantry for the Church of St Mary's, behind it, back in the 13th century. At some point in its history it became an inn, one of perhaps only two or three sighted on consecrated ground in the UK. The 1881 census records Janie living there, along with her father James Warburton, her mother Maria, her sister Emma, and two of Emma's children, and three adult brothers, William, John and Fred. Another Fred. There are quite a few Freds in this story. I will do my best not to confuse them. They also had a live-in servant with them called Kate. As well as being a publican, James was also a maltster, meaning that he brewed the beer that he sold, and he was the parish constable for the village. This was usually a voluntary and unpaid position, but came with quite a lot of responsibility, primarily ensuring that tenants paid their rents, but also overseeing the court leet that would act to ensure that the people looked after the roads and common lands, as well as dealing with any criminal matters. While being the constable was hard work, it also brought in custom, as tenants, having paid their dues, would stop for a meal and have a drink. When I visited the pub, I was quite moved to be confronted with what was a former family home, and found myself writing the following in my diary of that visit. The landlady of the Cross Keys throws open the back door of the pub for me, and I am confronted by a green, green view of trees and grafts and gravestones, the latter of which are jutting up like a snaggletooth smile. Behind me, I can hear the laughter of the customers and the music on the CD player. Ahead of me, I can make out the leaves rustling and the bird song. I stand on this threshold, where she that came before me must have stood so many times, and I suddenly resent all the noise getting in the way of me wanting to reach across to her, 140 years or more away. But then I remember Janie resented the noise and the clatter too, the endless stream of guests who wanted waiting on and entertaining with her piano playing, the many nights when she would try and rest while the drunken customers would set to on the piano themselves and sing raucously out of tune. Janie Warburton grew up in this pub and came to loathe the innkeeping trade. 
On three sides of the garden is the graveyard. Looming above is the Church of St Mary's, where Janie was baptised, and later where she married Fred. Mother Church is an oppressive building, so close to this doorway. Maria, Janie's mother, loomed heavily also, as she dictated nearly every spare moment of Janie's life. Many of Janie's letters to Fred have scrawled across the top left-hand corner in haste, often with a qualifying remark as have to help mother with the waiting or had to do the dinners. Over the course of reading them, I've learned that Janie finds it difficult to find private time to write. And when I read Fred's constant pleas for Janie to send him longer letters, I get a bit cross with him as he doesn't seem to grasp that she's doing her best. As I read more and more, I can see how much she was entirely co-opted by the innkeeping business and not just for the Cross Keys, but also for the Wellington down the road in Darnall, where she helped her cousin, Jeannie Reckless, do the ironing every week. And here we come to the tale of two sisters. I got a wonderful bit of context when I visited the Hansworth Museum. At that time, it was a tiny room in the rectory, presided over by local historian and writer Sandra Gillett. I'd written ahead and when I got there she'd already reached out for me a pile of documents that she thought I might be interested in. Among these was a book called Sicklesmiths and Spear Carriers by Rosamond Duquesne about the Staniforths of Darnall, a large local family of some note. It included details of the time that Jane was going down to help at the Wellington in Darnall, which at the time was run by Mary Staniforth whose maiden name was Carnal, which, interestingly enough, is also the same maiden name as Janie's mother, Maria. It is clear, confirmed by both the records and Jane's letters, that Mary is Maria's older sister, and therefore Janie's aunt. So we have two sisters running both the Wellington in Darnall and the Cross Keys in Handsworth. A large part of the shared workforce is supplied by their respective daughters, and in Mary's case also granddaughter, This explains why Ginny Reckless, Mary's granddaughter, and Janie Warburton are forever walking backwards and forwards between Darnall and Hansworth together. And you might remember from the first episode, that's how they met Fred, on one of those walks. Janie also often stays over midweek, which she mentions in letters that are addressed from Darnall rather than Hansworth. I might need to check this, but the Darnall letters often seem longer, so I get the impression she gets a bit more time to herself. Mary's husband, John Staniforth, had originally bought the George in Woodhouse, the next village after Handsworth. But observing the massive development going on in Darnall, Cannelly sold it in 1861 for £800 and bought the Wellington. He died in 1870 and Mary kept it on until she retired in 1901. After the sad death of Janie's father James in 1883, Maria, Janie's mother, also became the sole innkeeper for the Cross Keys and the matriarchy that had clearly run both businesses for many years became recognised in name. What I find interesting here is the heart of the family dynamic is the links between all the women, which of course doesn't usually get revealed through the traditional patriarchal recording of history. The book also gave me the name of Mary's mother, Jane Staniforth, who had married John Carnell in 1810. And doing a bit of record sifting, I eventually managed to connect her as Maria's mother too. 
The research in the book makes claim for cousins marrying several times here, which I won't go into because it's way too complicated. But what it means for our story is that Janie's mother, Maria, knew herself to be descended from the highly regarded Staniforths, as well as having her sister marry back into them. The Staniforths were an old North Derbyshire, South Yorkshire family of some note. Staniforth Road in Sheffield is so named after Samuel Staniforth Esquire, who built Darnall Hall in the 1700s. My branch of the family descends from his cousin, also another Samuel, whose son Thomas and grandsons established Thomas Staniforth & Co, a sickle, scythe and toolsmiths based in Hackenthorpe, Sheffield. I was quite surprised that the company has its own Wikipedia page, which told me that the company won the prize medal at the 1851 Great Exhibition for Excellence in Quality. The company was eventually taken over and it still trades to this day. Bringing this all back to Jane and trying to work out the subtle class differences between Fred and Janie, I think all this tells me that Jane comes from a respectable family who are from the upper levels of the working class and who wished to be perceived as on some kind of par from those who were from the lower middle classes. I think it might provide an explanation as to why Janie's mother was so anti-Fred. She was descended from the Staniforths, and may well have believed that Fred was beneath Janie. It definitely provides more context for that awful start to the relationship when she so publicly struck Janie in the street for walking out with him. I think it also makes it more clear how far from hope Fred felt about ever being able to marry someone like Janie. Until I looked into this, I suppose I thought Janie's background was more humble than it actually was. While I don't think the Warburtons were particularly rich, I'm starting to understand that they were probably getting by just fine. Jane, however, definitely seems to be a little exploited. Maria only employs one servant. The rest of the work is done by herself, occasionally Janie's older sister, when she can be persuaded, Ginny Reckless and Janie. I know that Janie does the washing, the dinners for pub guests, the ironing for both pubs, dressmaking, mending, waiting on tables, playing requests on the piano in between times and helping care for Emma's two youngest children. Emma is not very nice to Janie and causes her a lot of misery, but Emma deserves to have her story told in detail, so I'll get to her in another episode. On Sundays, Janie taught in the Sunday school, which was in the schoolroom across the road opposite the Cross Keys. She seems to love teaching the little children in particular and often refers to them as my little family. When she gets time to herself, she likes to visit friends, going to Sheffield to do what she called shop window gazing, take lessons in new needle crafts, read books about Victorian lady travellers and play the piano. She seems to try and get involved in anything that gets her out of the pub. Janie had a quick wit about her. She could always rouse Fred from his depressed mood. She had a fondness for inventing Daphne words. She comes across as cheerful and kind to people. I can see that part of falling in love with Fred over the years becomes falling in love with the idea of making her own home and her own family away from the unhappiness at the pub. When I stood in that doorway at the back of the Cross Keys, I wondered how many times she must have stood there, longing to get away. And then I know enough now to be confident that she would have shaken the sad moment off, pinned on a big smile and gone back inside to whatever demand was being made.
winter of 1878 and 1879 was one of the coldest on record, with snow remaining on the ground for almost four months. During the first part of 1879, an unsettling coolness also seems to creep in between Fred and Jane. In fact, the more I reread Fred's diary for the first half of 1879, I've retrospectively grown a little concerned for the future existence of their descendants, including myself. A little like the fading photograph of Marty McFly in the film Back to the Future. Fred continues to try and see Jane on Tuesdays and Sundays, but he has several fruitless visits to Hansworth, as she starts to get all evasive and uncommunicative, which doesn't seem like her at all. Sunday, January the 19th. Went to church in the morning, to Bible class in the afternoon, to church again in the evening with Janie. Had a conversation with her as to her great reticence. Could not understand it. The following Sunday, Fred is skating on the frozen Treton Old River, sees Janie and they skate together, which must have been gorgeous. But the next week, Fred endures a snub from Janie's brother. Monday, February the 10th. Went to the entertainment at Darnell School with Lucy and Maggie Craven and Ted. Saw Janie's brother there. He never recognised me. Put me out of temper. This has Fred brooding for a couple of days because on Wednesday he writes, Went to see Janie, lost my temper. Said something about, did her brother intend to slight or look down on me at all? If so, I resented it. Left her in a very ungentlemanly manner. This is looking for all the world like the Warburtons have closed ranks on this issue and I'm wondering how much they're actively interfering with Janie seeing Fred and what kind of things they are saying to her. Fred understandably is outraged and in this day and age it's easy to empathise with him. However, he is being rather determined, selfish even, to try and brazen things out in the face of such disapproval and I think it's a little unfair of him to be so hard on Janie too. Fred soldiers on and decides to buy and send Janie a valentine in the shape of a pair of gloves, a popular design with Victorians because glove contains the word love without having to be explicit. Sadly, on February the 16th, things blow up in his face rather as Jane suddenly sends back to him all the books he has lent her over their time together. Fred is completely at a loss until he finally manages to catch up with her several days later. Wednesday, February the 19th, went up with Ted to Hansworth, saw Janie and Miss Bray, had an explanation with her. It turns out that someone had sent her a foul valentine, which she thought had come from me. It was only after looking up valentine's traditions for this period that I discovered the concept of vinegar valentines. It appears to have been as much a tradition to send a mean valentine to someone as sending the romantic kind There are many surviving designs which are downright cruel, poking fun at people's appearance and character. And I've got open here a page of several examples and they all sort of exaggerate people's noses or their cleanliness or how attractive they are. A lot of them have rhymes at the bottom of the nasty pictures. One here says, why do they call you a nasty old cat? and say many things a deal ruder than that. Tis from envy, perhaps, of your manifold graces, how it would not please you to claw well their faces. And another one says, a professional scandalmonger. Your evil tongue, malicious liar, is a public pest, a nuisance dire, to see you muzzled fast and tight 
would be to all a joyful sight. And the picture actually shows a very ugly woman and there's actually a padlock through her lips. It's really quite horrible. I'm willing to bet that this foul valentine was of the vinegar variety, but of course, the identity of who sent it is lost to time. However, I have my suspicions. The most likely culprits are either Jane's former fiancé, Walter Brooks, whom she jilted to walk out with Fred, much to the uproar of her mother, or more likely, actually her mother herself. If Janie's been cowed and kept from seeing Fred, I personally wouldn't put it past Maria to send a vinegar valentine and then try and convince her of it being sent by Fred. Why would Jane think that Fred had done something like that all by herself? Instinctively, I feel as if someone has worked on Jane's insecurities, pushing the buttons that only families know about, encouraging her to doubt things and playing on her fears. And I know this is all my own conjecture, but I'm not sure how else to read Janie's change of heart. She believed it enough that she got upset enough to send back all of Fred's books. Fred saw her the next day, went up with Ted, saw Janie, everything went off splendidly. But then the next day he sends a letter, which would have been a repeat of everything that they discussed. So Fred obviously felt the need to underline the truth and reassure her. So here's that letter. February the 21st, 1879, 8.20pm. Dear Janie, you may be surprised at my writing to you after our late episode, but I am compelled to do so for several reasons. One is that you may have another opportunity of comparing this with the valentine that you received on the 14th, from which comparison you will be thoroughly satisfied that I did not send it, which, although not saying so, you seem to doubt on Wednesday night. Examine the composition, spelling, etc. I shall come up on Sunday night, God willing, weather permitting. I hope I shall see you, and will you bring that memorable valentine for me? I wish I had taken your letter back on Wednesday night. It would perhaps have pleased you, which I am always desirous of doing. I think I did apologise for those hasty words the other night. If not, I do so now. I hope you will forgive me. I don't know whether you have noticed it, but it is nonetheless the fact that Church Lane has not been properly utilised for 14 days. Prodigious. Likewise, a shame. I hope your father is better than he was when I saw you, so that you may have an opportunity of seeing our dramatic, very dramatic, entertainment on Tuesday night. If I should not see you, I suppose you'll be at Darnall Church at 7pm as promised. As to yourself, how shall I wish you? Answer, as before. If so, I remain yours in a state of some disconsolency. Fred. P.S. 1. I had to work late, so could not write this at home. I hope it will not make any difference to you. 2. Do not write back. There is not a delivery at Darnall on Sundays. 3. I hope this will find you as well as it leaves me present. That is the set school formula. The Church Lane mentioned, I think, is where they go to be alone. And in the PS, I love Fred's had to write this at work on works headed paper and remind you that I am employed in a respectable position at a big swanky firm. I found out a bit more about the dramatic entertainments and I'll be talking about them in a later podcast. Things are wavering for the rest of February and most of March. 
They decide not to walk out with each other anymore, which must have made Fred very sad. But given the atmosphere Janie must have been living under, might well have been the driver behind the decision. The pair of them obviously decide to do the sensible thing under the circumstances and stop the courtship. But before you get very sad, they only manage about a month. I'll let Fred finish this. Tuesday, February the 25th. Dramatic entertainment in connection with our mutual. Janie and Miss Bray came to it. When going home, I had a conversation with her as the desirability of our not being so intimate for a time, as long courtships were never much good. She agreed with me. We were to finish on the Sunday following. Saturday, March the 1st. Ted and Fred came up. We went to Hansworth, saw Janie. Salary increased to 28 shillings. Sunday, March the 2nd. Went to church in the morning. Stayed to communion. Afternoon walk. Night. Went to Hansworth. Saw Janie. Had a long walk with her. We're not going to be anything more than friends in the future. I had promised to send her my photograph. She is to send hers in return. Had a very affectionate parting. Sunday, March the 30th. Went to Sister Louise's in the afternoon. At night went up to Hansworth. It was late when I got up there, but saw Janie. She consented to have a short walk, which was delicious. It resulted in a return to the old manner of parting. Thanks for listening to my Love Letter Time Machine. I'd like to say thank you again to Sandra Gillett of the Hansworth Historical Society, who was a wonderful mine of information and so very helpful. We'll be back again in our next episode, in which we'll find out some more about those dramatic entertainments and get taken by Fred on holiday to Bridlington. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, all one word, or on my blog, mydarlingjanie.co.uk. Take care and have a great week. <laughs>